Mark chapter 14, and we'll begin at verse 1. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might try to take him, might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, let there be, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Sometimes you can watch a, a movie or a television drama and it begins at that present moment and then you see it's, the scene changes and it's posted up on the upper corner of the screen words such as three days earlier. And as we come to this scene in Mark's Gospel, we're seeing the same thing sort of taking place. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 2, you have the plotting of the, of the chief priests and the scribes. And then when we move to verses 3 to 9, we have events that took place a few days before what was happening in verses 1 through 2. So you have the present moment and then beginning of verse 3 you have events taking place days before, particularly what we have in verses 3 through 9. In, in John's account, in John chapter 12 verses 1 through 3, we find that this took place six days before the Passover. And while Mark points us to see the chief priests and scribes preparing for the Passover, not in the way that they were taught and were to instruct others. Consider the scene. If someone were to come to one of the chief priests, which wouldn't be too too unusual, and if they came to one of the chief priests and said, Sir, How is it 
that we are to observe the Passover. How should we do that? No doubt the chief priest would lay out the details. The unleavened bread, the offering of the lamb. What day these things were to be done. And even instructions on the day of atonement. And so if that person were to go on and and then to ask, well, what should be the state of the mind and of the heart? Oh, they would answer. It is to be a solemn day of reflection. It is also a time of giving glory to God for the past deliverances. A time also of remembering our sin. And a time of remembering God's deliverance. And what if that person went to go a little further and said, and sir, is that how you will observe it? Well, no. Because with the same lips that would give that instructions and these instructions to this person who was asking... Those same lips would be in consultation with the scribes. How is it that we might trap Jesus and kill Him? It's almost language like they're going after a a wild animal. How do we trap Him and then kill Him? Well did Jesus cast them correctly as hypocrites. Oh, they said, oh, but you know, if we think about this, we really can't do it at the feast. It will damage our peace. It will cause an uproar. It will hurt our poll numbers. Little did these pernicious plotters know that an event had already taken place that would answer their satanic supplications. And it would make it too good for them to wait till after the Passover. The event is told us at the beginning of Mark 14 and verse 3. Jesus is at Bethany. He's staying outside of Jerusalem for the moment. It's dangerous there. And the time had not yet come. And so he keeps a little distance from Jerusalem. Matthew, Mark, and John record this event that's here for us. Some say that Luke chapter 7 is also an account of this event. But we would say no. Because Luke has a different event in a different place. The event in Luke chapter 7 takes place in Galilee. This takes place in Bethany. Mark's account is at the house of Simon the leper. Luke's is at Simon the Pharisee. Luke's happened a great while before the time of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And in Luke's account, the Pharisee is the one who gets Offended. In Mark's account, it is, as John would divulge, 
That it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who comes in. And of course, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, was not known as an immoral woman, as was the case of the woman in Luke's event. So Matthew, Mark, and John give us an account of the same event. John tells us who the woman was. Matthew tells us whose house it was. And Mark tells us that she broke that vial, that flask of of expensive perfume over the head of Christ. John tells us that there was enough in that container that it dripped down to His feet. Matthew and Mark tell us that the disciples murmured. But it's John who tells us the disciple who actually spoke and why. And it shows us how malignant speech can spread quickly even amidst those who are not known to be so carping. How quickly they would withdraw from Jesus and join to Judas. So, and being Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table and a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? So Matthew tells us that the disciples were the ones who were murmuring here. And then... John would tell us that those are the words of Judas. Judas is the one saying these words, and John will also tell us why Judas said those words. But regardless, as Judas is saying these words, the other disciples are agreeing with him. And as we begin to zoom in on this event... We cannot help but see that it is Jesus who is in charge of the day of His death. Because we see in verses 1 and 2, the the chief priests are not really settled on when they need to do this. When to begin their plan. But let's look closer at the anointing. A woman comes in. Jesus is at the table, somewhat reclined, you might say. And of course, it's, it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and also the sister of Martha. We know that Lazarus is there. He is in attendance. He is amongst those who sit at the table. We will also read in another place that they are seeking also to kill Lazarus. Martha, the sister of Mary, is involved in serving food. And we learn from John that the flask that Mary had contained, or Mary had in her hand, that flask contained a pound of spikenard. A very aromatic fluid perfume. Spikenard really had no other use but as a perfume. There wasn't any medicinal value to it. There wasn't any other kind of 
a purpose that anybody would use it for. It's not, it wasn't a house cleaner or anything like that. It just was a fragrance. And since there was no mass production and the ingredients were on the rare side, <clears throat> just a little botanical sideline here, Spikenard is a flowering plant in the honeysuckle family, which also grows in Nepal, China, and India. So we can see part of the expense is because it came such a long distance to be in that flask that Mary had in her hand. And from the accounts, we see that Mary anointed Jesus from head to toe. If we turn to John chapter 12 for just a moment. Excuse me, in verse 1, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And... There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. (coughs) We have those details. But there's one particular detail that I would draw your attention to at this moment, and that is that when she put it on his head and it ran down all the way to his feet, the whole house was filled with the aroma. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. <clears throat> now, I don't want to make a crazy contrast here or be too graphic. But we know the room that he's in. And it's probably a very crowded room. We know that it's filled with people who don't know what a shower is unless it's raining outside. We know it's filled, the room is filled with people who do not bathe regularly. We know it's filled, it's a room that's filled with people who don't do their laundry very often. There may also be an animal or two in the room. In essence, if we were to walk in there, it would stink. It would stink really bad. I mean, it would be a point where perhaps you'd want to put some Vicks or something under your nose before you went in there so you would not be inhaling. See, they're used to it. They're used to it so they're not bothered by it. But the stench... In that room, probably, especially with no ventilation, would have been 
to some of us, stifling. So what a contrast it would have been to have this perfume permeating the air. And where is that aroma coming from? It's coming from Christ. How different that would make Jesus from the rest of them. In the Song of Solomon, which truly is a love poem of Christ to His church, There's a lot of references to fragrances. In chapter 1 and verse 3, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. The virgins, those who have not given themselves to other gods. Your name is an ointment It's a fragrance poured forth. And then verse 12, While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. A strong picture. But then, as we go to a New Testament idea, if we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. The fragrance of His knowledge. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. You see that? We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma of death leading to death the other the aroma of life leading to life. I think there's great symbolism in what she did and how that fragrance, John makes sure we knew, filled the room. And one cannot help but think also as you read about all the, the fixtures around the tabernacle. There was one that was outside the Holy of Holies. There was an altar that was outside the Holy of Holies. And that was the altar of incense. And that would send this fragrance. And it was used when the people had their times of prayer. And it would be that which would go along. The incense altar had to be kept going while the people had their hours of prayer. That this would be symbolic to the people that their prayers needed something to be accepted by God, and that is a precursor of Christ. It was also when you had that altar of incense, the incense was consumed upon that altar, which was a pre-picture of going into the Holy of Holy and the altars 
there where the sacrifice would be completely consumed for, for sin. There's so many pictures going on here. And so this, this particular situation, this particular picture of Christ and the aroma filling the room. But we notice right after this, we have the animosity. We have the anointment, anointing, and then we have the animosity in verse 4 and 5. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. Matthew and Matthew's account of this tells us, but when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. And the question, can you imagine the question, why was this fragrant all wasted? Why was it wasted? Think of that for a moment. It was poured out on Jesus. Here's an expression of, of love, a costly expression. And it is now said to be wasted because it had been poured out on Christ. Now I can only imagine what it must have been like in that room if it were today and everybody had a smartphone and social media connections. And they were taking videos of her anointing the head of Jesus and zooming in on the label on that flask and making all kinds of comments about what she's doing. And then there'd be a viral video that went out of the whole scene. It never ceases to amaze me how eager the disciples were to question and in some cases seek to correct the Lord Jesus. Oh yeah, the Scripture tells us that they were laying their criticism at her. But who was it that she was pouring this on? It could have been easy in their minds to say, Jesus, you could have stopped this. So in criticizing her, they're criticizing Him. Because He's receiving this. I want you to see something. We hear that the words that were spoken in criticism, and John tells us it was actually Judas that said them and told us why. But notice what takes place. As these words of Judas are being said, we are told by Matthew that the disciples were murmuring as well. Which means this. The disciples had moved from being on the side of Jesus to the side of Judas. Judas. 
Judas says, this is a waste. And the disciples are going, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, it is. Judas says, this could be sold for 300 denarii to the poor. The disciples say, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, it could. It could. Those who were with Jesus joined with Judas. Perhaps none of them would have said a word had not the wicked slander of Judas incited them. But how easy it is, we see, to be led into false judgments. Yes, Judas seemed to have a plausible argument. But that plausible argument was given by a venomous tongue. There's a word here for us. For if they could become murmurers against Christ, companions of Judas in criticism due to harsh judgments and false judgments, what of us? You see what happens when people form an opinion without paying regard to the Word of God. So this leads to an admonishment by Jesus. And the word admonish can mean to warn, like we saw last week, but it also can mean a reprimand. And it comes quickly from Jesus. And I would say it probably has an exclamation point. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me, or actually to me. The ESV has it, she's done a beautiful thing to me, and that word kalos can mean something beautiful to look at. He pronounced as good what they condemned as bad. And that should be a wake-up call. Because sometimes we're really quick to condemn. And the cancel culture in which we live in makes it more and more enticing for us to be of that mindset. It might be a different story if it were happening regularly. But this, at this time, is a one-time occasion. And He uses it to show what it meant. She has done what she could in verse 8. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Did Mary know that? I don't think so. I think she was moved just merely by love for her Savior, her Lord. But under the hand of what we might call prophetic providence, she proclaimed the nearness of the Lord's death. And as one put it, in that act of love done to Him, she had erected to herself an eternal monument as lasting as the Gospel, as eternal as the Word. You see what we 
we have we need to notice something in the response of Jesus here when he speaks about what she did. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. This shows that Jesus is Lord of the Word and, and through the Spirit of, of Christ, the Word is given. So therefore, wherever the gospel is written, what she did. See, only the one in charge of the gospel could be the one who says what's in the gospel. An eternally memorialized and imperishable memory. And this continues today. Here we are, living proof. We just read. We just provided more proof to what Jesus had said. But you know, the unfortunate thing is, as we remember the good she did, we are forced to remember the bad that the disciples did. But this also tells us something else. There's an eternal remembering. An eternal remembering. For us, that eternal remembering is wiped clean by a, an eternal pardon given to us through Christ. But for those chief priests and the scribes, there's an eternal memory that is reminded every moment. And so it is also with those who have denied the truth of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. They seem every year to pop up and they seem to have, uh, sometimes they're wearing clergy garb, and they seem to have a plausible argument when they say, well, reject the resurrection because it is impossible and no one has ever done that before. And when I hear that, I say, bingo! You got it! No one else has done that before because no one else is Jesus Christ. In saying what they say, they show the uniqueness and power of Christ. On the cross, Jesus took our punishment, our hell upon Himself. And here in this one little, peaceful, beautiful moment, the depth of the symbolism behind what Mary did takes us beyond all that we can pull from this. But we see that because of what Christ has done for us and Christ in us, we are a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Let's stand together for prayer.